uh, our series in Exodus, and we're going to be in chapter 5 today, and we're studying Exodus uh, because Exodus is a great story about how God always moves us out of one thing through a wilderness into something else. And so we have this great uh, gr- introduction graph that we, that we drew at the first sermon. I'd highly recommend going back and listening to that sermon online so you can kind of get a feel for the overall flow. It's a long book, and we're moving pretty quickly, but all of it is pressing towards this idea that God is a God who is in the business of moving us out of bondage, and it's, there's always a, a, a transition time in a wilderness, sometimes short, sometimes long, as we'll see for Israel, 40 years, so that he can move us into something else. And what we say is that freedom from is not only freedom from, but freedom for the worship of God. So, so God doesn't just want it to get rid of something, he wants to add something, which is his worship. And and when we worship him, what we find, and I found this in my own life, it always leads to our good, our thriving, even when it's hard, as we'll see today. So why, why should you pay attention to this particular sermon? Why should you tune in? Why should you not tune out and, and wait for me to be done so that you can have more great music and, and conversation? Well, here, here's why. Here's why you should care about this sermon. Today we are talking about disappointment. And unless you've been... I don't know, on a, on, a, on a trip to the moon or something over the last year, you've probably experienced a lot of disappointment in, in, in this last calendar year. Uh, I know I have. And one of the things that the disappointment of this last year in particular has, has done for me is that it makes me uh, fearful to hope. Because you see, hope is, is actually what leads to disappointment. And we're smart enough to realize the less I hope, the, the less I experience disappointment. And so often in our lives, what we default to after years and years of experiencing disappointment is, you know what, maybe I just need to stop hoping. Because how good is hope really? Because the scars and the pain and the aches of disappointment, they ring pretty loudly in our ears. So, so maybe if I just stop hoping then I won't have to experience disappointment. Maybe you feel that way these days. I know I have to battle this proclivity towards unhope because I know God calls us to hope, but it's hard. You see, there, there wouldn't be, right, any disappointment if there were no hope. So if, you, if you're living at all in any type of disappointment right now, this is a message for you. This is a message for you. So let's consider it together and, and, and to understand what uh, the anatomy of disappointment is, we got to start in chapter 4, even though our main focus is going to be chapter 5 today. So let me start in chapter 4, and I'm going to start in verse 29. So um, here's what you need to know if you haven't been tracking with us. So uh, God has called Moses, who is known as the greatest prophet of Israel, even to this day. Moses um, was, he's a Hebrew. He was born as a slave, but God miraculously rescued him, raised him in the royal family. He ends up later in life murdering someone who is treating another slave, one of his kinsmen, uh, improperly, and he has to flee, and so he flees into the desert, into, uh, and, and he finds a home, and he finds a family in the desert, uh, in the Sinai Peninsula, and, and then after some time there, God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, you maybe heard of the burning bush, and, and a voice comes out of this burning bush, and God says, Moses, I'm going to send you back in to Egypt, because you're going to be the vehicle that I use to free my people from bondage. And Moses, like we said last week, he tries to get out of it nine times. <laughs> he tries to get out of it. And so we called it last week's sermon was uh, Moses' butts. Nine times he says, but, but, but God, I think you've got the wrong guy. I'm not so eloquent. Um, I don't really think I'm going to be able to accomplish the assignment that you've given me. And so God gives him promise, signs, nine times to get him over the hump so that Moses will actually go. 
So God's patience is great with us, even when we don't feel worthy of our assignment. And so Moses finally says, okay, I'm going to go. He gets the blessing of his father-in-law Jethro, who sends him on his way. And so then Moses and his wife and his son Gershom, they go through the desert. Halfway through, they meet uh, Moses' brother, Aaron. And, and God has told Moses, because you don't speak well and, and you don't think you can do it, even though you could, because I'm the Lord of the mouth, I could give you everything you need. God says, I'll give you a helper. Your brother Aaron, he'll come. He was still living in Egypt. He'll come meet you halfway, and then he'll come with you, and you will go before Pharaoh. So that's where we are in the story of Exodus. And so when we pick it up in verse 29, it says this. Then Moses and Aaron went... And gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. So they get all the way back to Egypt. They gather the religious uh, leaders of the Israel slave community in Egypt. They gather them together. Verse 30. And Aaron spoke all these words. Again, if you remember from last week, because Moses uh, doesn't think he's so good at speaking. So Aaron spoke the words that the Lord, and remember we said anytime you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, that's actually the personal name of God, Yahweh. So Aaron spoke all the words that Yahweh had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. What were those signs? Remember he has the staff that when he throws it to the ground, turns into a serpent. He, Moses can put his hand into his cloak, and when he pulls it out, he has a skin disease, and then he puts it back in his cloak, and the skin disease is gone, and then he can also turn water into blood. So so they perform these signs in front of the elders and the people, uh, the leaders of the Hebrew community living in bondage. And verse 21, what happens? And the people believed Right? Moses was so worried, wasn't he, that no one would believe him, that Yahweh had actually spoken to him. And look, they believe him. And when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, that God cared when they heard this, they bowed their heads and worshiped. It's beautiful. I mean, you have to, you have to, it's so hard. For 400 years, they've been enslaved, beaten, treated as subhuman, oppressed, taught that they don't matter, and then they hear that their God remembered them and that their God was sending them a rescuer. And they believed And they fell to their knees, and they worshiped, and their hearts were filled with with a hope that most of us probably couldn't even imagine. Finally, God's heard our cries. He's come to rescue us. Hope. Hope. What a beautiful thing. Now chapter 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, okay, you have a lot of gumption to just walk back into the palace after you'd fled because you were found out to be a murderer. You walk back in and they walk right into the palace and they say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Let my people go that they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. Now look at this. But Pharaoh said, now this is no small thing, we'll come back to this. So Moses says, Yahweh said, and Pharaoh says, I say. What is Pharaoh doing? He's saying he's on the same level as this so-called God. When Pharaoh speaks, it's as if God speaks. Moses says, Yahweh has said. So Pharaoh puts himself on the level of Yahweh. And what does Pharaoh say? He says, who is this Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they, that's Moses and Aaron, said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. 
Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest, we fall, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, this is sort of interesting because what they're actually asking for, if you took the pop quiz, you might be realizing right now that you got a question wrong. They don't ask for full, uh, full freedom. They just ask for a three-day worship festival in the wilderness. They're like, just let us go to the Burning Man, and then we'll come back, and we'll go back to work. Now, why do they do this? We actually see earlier, if you were reading closely, God tells them to say this as the first thing. And so the question is, well, that's not God's full intent. That's not his full plan. He wants to give them full freedom from their slavery and bondage. But I think God tells them to lead with this request so that they might see how hardened Pharaoh's heart already is towards them. I mean, Pharaoh won't even give them a three-day weekend. He won't even give them President's Day off. He's like, listen, these are my people. I own them. They don't need rest. Let's see what Pharaoh says. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens, from their work? The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and the foremen, quote, You shall no longer give the people straw to make their bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Here's what Pharaoh's saying. He's saying, they, they clearly aren't working hard enough if they think they've got time to just go away for three days. Maybe, maybe we can up their quota even or make them work even harder. Clearly they have free time to do this kind of worshiping stuff. Verse 9, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. They don't need rest. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. You see that? Just like Moses says, thus says the Lord, thus says Pharaoh. God has spoken. Small g, God. I will not give straw. Go, get your own straw. Wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered. The people who were scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. You needed straw to make bricks. But they had to now get their own raw material. So the people, um, so the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, and when, uh, even when there was no straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So they're not meeting their quotas anymore. They're failing because of these new, harder requirements. Verse 15, Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. So now the foreman, that would be so the, man, the, the, the upper management of uh, the slave class, came to Pharaoh and this is what they said. Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is not your own people. But he said, Pharaoh said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. So go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. So the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks from your daily task each day. So the leaders again met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And they came out when they came out from Pharaoh and they said to Moses and Aaron, Yahweh, look on you. May Yahweh, look at this, this is so important. May Yahweh look on you, Moses and Aaron, May they look on you, may he look on you and judge you, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. 
you imagine what it's like to be Moses and Aaron? What that would have felt like? They're now being cursed by the people that they've come to help. And you can't blame the people. I mean, they're just, they're just trying to survive. They, their hope is completely gone at this point. Do you see that? And they're disappointed. They're no longer bowing and worshiping Yahweh. They're cursing the prophets that God has sent. And then look what Moses does. Verse 22, Then Moses turned to Yahweh, the Lord, and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. What was just hope and celebration and worship has turned into bitter disappointment and fear. What's going on? Why? Why, God? Why would you do this? Why is this your way? If you student of the the scriptures, what you'll realize is that this is just the beginning of a long and cyclical pattern for God's people. Hope, then disappointment. Hope, then disappointment. So you can actually say to be a person of God is to be a person of disappointment. Let me just give you a few examples. The prophet Jeremiah the prophet Jeremiah, and I think we have a slide for this. The prophet Jeremiah was given a calling from God. He, he was um, preaching and prophesying in the last decade of, of, of the southern kingdom's independent uh, reign. So if you know the history of Israel, um, they do eventually get into the promised land. They end up setting up a monarchy. Then the monarchy divides into the north and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom gets taken away into captivity, but the southern kingdom is still um, a viable entity, and uh, they have a, usually bad kings that don't follow the way of the Torah, seek out to God. The worship of other gods and idols comes into their midst. And then eventually, in Jeremiah's day, the southern kingdom gets conquered, and they get taken away into Babylon. But before that happens, when Jeremiah begins his ministry, th- this, this is what Jeremiah says God called him to. Look at this. Jeremiah chapter 1 says this, verse 9. Then the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, Jeremiah speaking, and told me I have now f- that, that he, that's God, has now filled your mouth with God's words. So this is then what God says to Jeremiah. See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and to plant by your mouth. This is God's prediction for Jeremiah's life. Now imagine at the beginning of Jeremiah's life how much hope he would have had. I mean, who would turn down that assignment? By your mouth you can crush kingdoms of this earth. By your Mouth you can build and plant. By your mouth you can uproot and tear down. Wow, who would turn that down? So it's hope in God's prediction for Jeremiah's life. Chapter 1, beginning of his ministry. Now if you know anything about Jeremiah, you know that he's often referred to as the weeping prophet. So even though that prediction of hope and power that God truly spoke over Jeremiah's life. And we look back now and we see, oh no, his words actually did tear down nations. But in Jeremiah's own life, his ministry was marked by bitter, bitter disappointment and weeping. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. At one point, he was stripped naked and thrown into a ditch to die because of the words he spoke. And and yet, this is what God promised him. So you get to uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, and this is what Jeremiah says to God after all of this bitter disappointment. This is what Jeremiah says, chapter 20. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You seized me and prevailed, 
I am a laughing stock all the time. Everyone ridicules me. For who, wherever I speak, I cry out. I proclaim violence and destruction so that the word of the Lord has become my constant disgrace and derision. I say I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name, but the messages become as a fire burning in my heart. Shut up in my bones, I become tired of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. And so he says, I must prophesy and preach. For I have heard the gossip of many people. Terror is on every side, they say. Report him, let's report him. Everyone I trusted watches for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived so that we might prevail against him and take our vengeance on him. He cries out to God, God, I believed your promise. I worshipped you. I did everything you said. I spoke the words you put on my mouth. And I'm a laughing stock. You've deceived me. Sense that? You feel his bitter disappointment in God. Now, of course, look at us. We're studying his words. (laughs) Nearly 3,000 years later. God was right, okay, but Jeremiah couldn't see it. He was a prisoner of the moment, and he felt real disappointment, and he wasn't wrong for feeling disappointed, but he kept doing the work of God. We'll get to that later. So many stories of that. You say, like, well, that's the Old Testament. In the day of Jesus, it's a prosperity and joy and bliss following Jesus, that's easy. Well, let's see what Jesus said about those who follow him. In John chapter 16, verse 33, this is what Jesus said to his own disciples, his own followers. He said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So take heart, I have overcome the world. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, I missed, sorry, I missed that middle part there. In this world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation. People you love will die. People will be beaten, imprisoned, enslaved. But don't worry, Jesus says. That won't be the end of the story. I've overcome this world. You see, see, we like to plaster on cups and, you know, God bless Hobby Lobby, but like on, you know, the, the word art, just parts of these verses. We like to preach prosperity and tell people that if you follow Jesus, life will be good and easy and he'll multiply your cattle and your bank account. You'll get a promotion. Your marriage will be easy. Your kids, they'll fall in line. Jesus didn't say that. He never promised that. Jesus said, you will have tribulation. And he says in other places, you'll probably have more than the average person if you follow me. Because if you follow me, people will beat you because they want to beat me. One more example. You guys know about John the Baptist? John, known as the baptizer, not like Baptist, like the denomination. He's just, (laughs) he baptized people in the river. He was the older cousin of Jesus, and God gave him the task of preparing the way of the Messiah. So so John gave up a lot. Like, John lived in the wilderness. (laughs) He ain't got very nice clothes. He's eating uh, locusts dipped in honey. That was his diet. Locusts are grasshoppers, if you don't know. He did this for years and years because he believed that God had given him a calling, an assignment to prepare the way of the Messiah. So John spoke truth. John told people to to repent and be baptized because God was coming into the world, that the Messiah was coming. He was preparing the way of the Lord. He spoke truth to power. He did everything. In fact, he spoke truth to Herod, who was king of Israel. I put that in uh, quotation marks. He had the political power, and he spoke against him because Herod was sleeping with his brother's wife. And he says, that is not the way of the Lord. Well... Political uh, elites don't like to be called out publicly, and so they arrested John, put him in jail, and he's sitting in jail, no longer able to do his work. 
and he's heard about Jesus. In fact, John was the one who baptized Jesus. But John is wondering, how, how can this be? Because God promised that I'd get to pave the way for the Messiah. And I'm in jail. And so you know, he starts to be confused and he, and he wonders, is Jesus truly this Messiah that God has promised? And so he called some of his uh, disciples. John had his own disciples. Those are you know, his students. And they came and, and they visited him in prison. And John sends them out on a mission. Go ask Jesus if he's the Messiah that we've all been waiting for. So his disciples go, they come to Jesus, and they ask, John sent us, are you the Messiah, the one that was predicted and hoped for by these Old Testament prophets and people? And so this is what Jesus says, Luke chapter 7. I think we have it here up on the screen. Jesus said to him, said to the disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. Even dead people are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay. Those are, those are good signs <laughs> that, that you might be sent by God. But actually what's happening here is Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah predicted when the Messiah comes, all these things that Jesus was actually doing and that Jesus quotes here would be done. So actually what Jesus is saying is, I am fulfilling Isaiah's prophecies. That's what Jesus is saying. Now he's actually doing these things, so they're not, they're not hollow prophecy fulfillments, but he's, remind, he's saying, listen, tell John, I'm the suffering servant that Isaiah predicted. So then John's disciples would have run back, told John, this is what Jesus said, and this is what he's been doing. John already knew that Jesus was doing these things. But Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. Now, as the disciples are now in the prison, you know, outside the prison cell or however that worked, telling John what Jesus says, they're, they're verbatim repeating what Jesus said. This is what is going on in John's mind, because John knows the Old Testament. John knows the prophet Isaiah. He knows this in and out. He knows this. And, and they're rattling off all these things. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And John knows Isaiah so well that he knows what else Isaiah predicted. Do you know what else Isaiah predicted? And the prisoners shall be set free. Look at this. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Messiah will come to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So John, sitting in a prison cell, bound, is anticipating, as his disciples are repeating what Jesus says, that the next thing they're going to say is that the prison doors will swing open and the bound will be set free. Guess what Jesus never said? John says, well, what? Could you repeat that again? I think you missed something. <laughs> they say, no, that's all he said. Well, you know, I wonder if they said, well, go back, ask him again. I think, no, of course. Here's what Jesus is saying. John, I am the Messiah. You have paved the way. You've completed your assignment. And you will die in prison. What? No, 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 no. That, that can be God's plan. John, this is how your story ends. Bitter disappointment. Listen, one of our principles at Sedaris, we, we talk about this in the newcomers class, we have 14 principles that sort of shape how we move into this world. One of them, uh, number four, is that honesty breeds freedom. Honesty breeds freedom. Now, that means a lot of different things, but one of the things that we say is that when you are honest with the Word of God, it breeds a lot of freedom. And if you honestly read this book, what you will realize is that God never promises that your life won't be filled with disappointment, tribulation, hardship, and suffering. And you too might die in prison. But He promises 
that one day he will overcome the world. And your prison sentence won't be eternal. It's always temporary. But temporary to God always means something different than temporary to us, doesn't it? We've got to be honest, and God again and again tells us that the pattern of his people is hope and disappointment commingled. And there's nothing wrong with being disappointed in God as long as you keep worshiping him. I think that John the Baptist was severely disappointed. If you know his story, he ends up being beheaded and his head served on a platter at a royal party. But you know what? I don't think John ever stopped worshiping because his eyes had seen the coming of the Lord. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. He got to be a part of that story. So why not? Like, why not let John the Baptist go free? God could do it. Why not let Jeremiah just have a sliver of fulfillment? Why does God, as we'll see, let the people of Israel in slavery be beaten and worked harder when, he, when God sends the rescuer? Why? Here's what I think. I think God for thousands of years was preparing his people to understand the true gospel. And if you know what the gospel is, it's that God sent himself in the person of the Son from heaven to earth to take on flesh, to live the life that we could not live, the perfect life of obedience to the Father, a sinless life, so that he might become a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sin, rebellion, and disobedience of all God's people throughout all time, past, present, and future. But in order to make that hope a reality, God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, would have to hang on a Roman cross and die. Now, even if you were a student of the Scripture and you understand the pattern of hope and disappointment, you couldn't even prepare yourself for that kind of disappointment. Imagine Jesus' disciples after all the miracles. He's raised people from the dead. He's calmed storms with a word. And yet they watch their rabbi their Messiah, the one they were putting all their hope in, walk through the streets of Jerusalem with a cross on his back, waiting at every moment. When's the rescue coming? When is that moment that God shows up? When does Jesus reveal his true power and just put everybody down? And it never happens. And that wood cross is popped into the hole, and Jesus hangs and they're still waiting. Wait, wait, wait. These people laugh and they mock and they think God's about to show up. Jesus is about to be vindicated. And yet silence. And the last breath goes out of their Messiah's mouth. I mean, can you imagine the bitter, soul-shaking, faith-destroying, hope-obliterating disappointment that they felt in that moment? As they walked away. And their hope was dead. I think God in the Exodus and in Jeremiah and with King David and on and on and on was preparing his people to understand what had to be done. Jesus had to die. The ultimate disappointment of the one that they considered Messiah to die the most shameful death that any prophet could die, being hung from a tree. That was, in the Old Testament, the most shameful way to die. And Jesus, who they thought the Messiah died, and yet God willingly 
And Jesus willingly allows his beloved disciples to experience this. It doesn't mean the disappointment goes away. It was real. But then three days later, hope arose. They had to go through the disappointment to see God's better plan on the other side. Even though Jesus predicted, he tried to tell them this had to happen, they couldn't see it until they experienced the disappointment. And there's something about the disappointment that actually filters out the false hope from the true hope. And when Jesus rose again, his, his, the disciples now realized one thing. We've just got to let God do what he's going to do and not try to think ahead of God. <laughs> So I think that's part of why God allows disappointment. Because we like to predict what he's going to do next. If there's one thing that you, you must know when you read this book, you don't know what God's going to do next. He gives us little glimpses, and glim- but it always turns out different than we think. And that's true of your life too. Your vision of your life will not be how it actually plays out. It'll be riddled with disappointment. But that doesn't mean that your hope in God has to waver. Because, see, when you hope in the results and not in God, disappointment comes. But if you hope in God and not the results, you can live a life of pain and suffering and tribulation and not lose hope. Does that make sense? That might not make Let me try to say that again. I think, particularly in America, and particularly with the demographic that we've got here, We say we hope in God, but really what we want from God is results. Like we think that God can get us what we want, so that's why we're here and we're not spending our time somewhere else. We want something from God. We want the results. We hope in the results. And what God is trying to do, and he had to do it with Moses and he had to do it with the people of Israel, he's stripping us of that false worship. That's false worship. To worship God because of what he might do for you is not true worship. True worship is worshiping God, period. Come what may. And if we never experienced, if he gave us everything that we wanted, we'd never realize, oh, I wasn't actually hoping in God, I was hoping in the results that God could bring. Let me just let you sit in that for a sec. What if God never gave you any good thing for the rest of your life? What if your story was one of Jeremiah's, of being beaten, imprisoned, stripped naked, and thrown in a trench? What if yours was John the Baptist, sitting the greatest years of Jesus' ministries, locked up in a cell, and then ultimately beheaded? Would you still worship God if you knew that was your story? By the grace of God, he's going to let you be disappointed. Because he wants to teach your heart that worshiping him is enough, come what may. So let me ask you three questions to kind of close our time here today. I'm going to sort of start you down the road of application. If if you've been at Sedaris for a while, it probably drives you crazy I don't give a lot of like hard and fast applications. Three times a week, do this, and you will be saved. No. I send you down a path because you need to apply this stuff in your own life. And I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what you're disappointed in. I don't, I don't know. God knows, and he'll take what I say to help you do the work that will lead to life now. Worship now. So let me, let me just ask you a couple questions to head you down that road. But you need to apply this. That's part of why cohorts are so important. That's a place where you can say out loud what you believe God is, how he's applying his word to your life. And when you share that with other people, it comes alive and you have some accountability. How, how are you doing with that? Are you taking your disappointment to God, for instance? In what ways? How has that been? Right? You need to be in community so that you can share out loud how God is applying these things. But let me, let me send you a little bit down this road, okay? So here's the first question. 
Are you afraid to hope? Are you afraid? Are you so, like me, are you so, is the taste, the bitterness of disappointment so fresh in your mind, especially after this last year, that you've just decided, you know what, I'm going to stop hoping for now. I'm going to stop hoping in God. I'm going to stop hoping. Um, I, I was reminded of the, I was watching a Disney Plus movie with my kids. You got to say kids so that people don't think you just watch Disney Plus on your own. With my kids. No, I was watching it with my kids. And um, it's a great show about a young eight-year-old girl and a squirrel who has superpowers. Very Disney. Um, Flora and Ulysses. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, we've come to this place in our society where the heroine of the story, Flora, the eight-year-old, is a self-proclaimed cynic. Like, the first 15 minutes is all about she's a believer in cynicism because she can't, then she can't get hurt. I mean, she's saying this is a Disney movie to young kids, and they're learning that being a cynic is actually one path you can take in life. Now, eventually, it's Disney, so they they help move people out of cynicism, but just the idea that there's the things that they're saying out loud in this movie, I was like, cynicism is a problem in our society. Cynicism is choosing to not hope in people because people are selfish and you know they'll let you down. Um, I mean, there's been so many times in my life where in, in something that I've hoped in and then been hurt, I've just chosen not to hope in that. Uh, I've mentioned it before, like, like when I was young and in shape, I, I played high school basketball, and I had so much hope. I, I loved basketball. I loved it. And I gave so much of my life and my thoughts and my <laughs> dedication to basketball. And my senior year, I was captain of the basketball team. My senior year, we were ranked second in state. Like, I was hoping big things, and we fell flat. And I had several, like, college basketball offers, and I just decided after that year, the disappointment that I experienced my senior year, it wasn't worth that, and so I decided I'm not going to hope anymore, and I just quit basketball. Now, in some regards, that might have been okay because I worshiped basketball. God freed me from that, but on another level, I was just choosing to not hope for fear of disappointment. What if I pursue collegiate basketball and it doesn't go how I hope? I didn't want that feeling of disappointment. So what is it for you? What are you fearing right now? What disappointment feels too much that I'm not even going to hope anymore? Listen. It's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be disappointed in God. Like, you're not protecting God by not hoping in Him. Like, it doesn't ruin His plan if you are disappointed in Him. He's going to do what He's going to do regardless. We're going to see this in the story. The people are intensely disappointed. Moses is intensely disappointed. And God says, I'm still going to free you. It's okay to be disappointed even with God so long as you keep worshiping him. So don't be afraid to hope. Don't be so fearful of disappointment that you stop hoping. The second question I'll I'll have you ask yourself is, are you a fair-weather worshiper? Do you worship God only when things are going exactly as you hoped they would go? Am I a fair feather worshiper? Do I thank God every single day for my health? Or do I only grumble when my health goes the wrong way? Look how quick the people turn on God. From chapter 4 to chapter 5. I mean, it's quick. It can happen quick. Fair weather worshipers. At least to start. I mean, look at Moses. (laughs) Okay, here's the thing you have to know about Moses. He's so disappointed 
Why did you send me, he says. Why did you send me, verse 22. Why did you send me? If this is what's going to happen, it's going to make it harder for my people. Why did you send me? Listen, God four or five times told him already, Pharaoh's not going to listen for a while. Like God's already told him this would happen, and yet he's still utterly disappointed. He's like, I just thought you were saying that stuff. I just thought you were saying that stuff. Listen. Do you desire results or do you desire God? God didn't say he was going anywhere. Pharaoh just was stubborn and made them work harder. You see what I'm saying? Listen, you worship God in your disappointments and in your victories. That's how you know you're worshiping God and not the results. We've been talking about how, Exodus, how do we actually be the kind of people that can survive in the wilderness? Because it will come. And, the, and we've been saying since the beginning of this series, you will not survive in the wilderness because of disappointment, because of pushback, because of evil, because of all the things that war against you. You won't survive the wilderness unless you remember many things, but I'm going to focus on one here, the sovereignty of God. God's plan is not your plan. Again, Temporary to God is not synonymous with temporary to you. God is doing things that you cannot fathom. His ways are not your ways. You never would have picked sending the Son into the world to die on a cross as the way to save all people. Your your ways are not God's ways. But when you understand that God is sovereign, meaning nothing will get in his way, when he says something, it truly happens. Pharaoh thinks his words have that power, but we're soon to find out they do not. God's words actually have that power. And even when you don't understand why he's doing it this way, or why he'd let you go to the valley of the shadow of death, he's saying, trust me, I'm with you. And what I say will come to pass. Jesus did rise three days later, vindicating the disappointment of the cross. You can trust his word. And when you feel disappointed, you don't stop worshiping and you start hoping again because you know he's doing something that I don't quite understand. So when pestilence comes, when famine comes, when oppression comes, the people of God always say, I don't like this, and that's okay, but I also continue to trust God because he's been doing this for a long time. I'm going to worship him. Are you a fair-weather worshiper? And if you are, you can change that. You can choose to worship even in your disappointment. Forgetfulness is the railways on which the disappointment train runs, (laughs) okay? So if you want to lay a track to shattering hopelessness, just be forgetful. Just forget everything that God has done for you. And then you can just let disappointment run you over and ruin you. If you don't want that, you can build a different set of tracks, which is remembrance. Like, just think about how God brought you to him. Like, how did you end up in this room? I mean, there's literally a billion other things that you could be doing. If you're watching online, there's a billion other things you could be watching. A lot of things funnier than this, a lot of things more exciting than this, and you're here watching this. How did you get here? Who brought you here? Why are you here? God brought you here. God reached out. He put something in your path to bring you here to this moment, to hear about his grace, to hear about his sovereignty, so that you wouldn't stop hoping even in your current disappointment. Like, remember how crazy it is that we know Jeremiah's words, that we know who John the Baptist is, beheaded at age 30. Like, just remember what God is doing and what he's done in your life, and you will not let your disappointments run you over. I'm not saying you won't have them. It's okay to be disappointed, but you'll hope and worship in the midst. Remember, remember, remember. The people of God always remember what God has done. So I'm going to ask the band to come up.
as we close our time worshiping, singing about what God has done. And as they're coming up, I'll just remind you that um, over the next three songs, there's these little, if you're here in the, ho- in the, in the house, there's uh, some wine and some bread, and, and we're going to participate. We do this every week. It's the Lord's Supper. Jesus commanded his disciples to do this every time they gathered in remembrance of his death for their sin and their freedom, okay? So at any time in the next two songs, you can rip off the top, which is a little wafer. That's the body of Christ that represents it. It was broken for you. God in the flesh let his body be broken for you. And then you can rip off the next layer and drink the cup that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. God let his blood be shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And so anyone, anyone can have that forgiveness. Anyone can experience that freedom. All, all you have to do is choose today that you'll serve the Lord, that you'll worship the Lord, that you'll hope in the Lord, Yahweh, Jesus, Yeshua saves. And you can do that in the next three songs. So I just want to let us enter into a time of prayer here, okay? I'd like everybody, if you could just close your eyes and bow your heads. I'm going to be the only one in the room that I want whose eyes open because I just want to see something here, okay? With, with your head bowed, would you just be really honest in this moment and ra- raise your hand if you're experiencing disappointment with God? Would you just slip your hand up? If you're experiencing disappointment with God right now, that's okay. That's okay. I, just, I won't tell everybody, lots of people just raised their hand. You're not alone in that. God sees you. He hears your cries. And he wants your good. His ways are not your ways. His plans are not your plans. You don't see exactly how you will come out of this wilderness of disappointment, but you will. One way or another, Jesus has purchased your victory. He has overcome the world. So don't lose hope. Double down in your trust of Jesus. Come to him broken, battered, beaten, naked, thrown into a trench, beheaded. Come to him. He will save you. He will give you everything you need to take the next step. He loves you. And he's proved it over and over again. Don't give up. Father God, thank you for never giving up on us, for loving us to the point of death, even death on a cross. You took on our shame, our guilt, and our disappointment on the cross, and you rose again to give us new life, new hope, and a new relationship with you. God, may we choose to accept your hand of friendship. May we choose to accept your forgiveness. May we choose today to serve and worship you even in our disappointment. God, hear the worship and praise of your people.